Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the life, career, and deaths of famous music icons. I am your host, LD. Alongside me for this ride is... TJ! Yay! Yay! I've missed you. I missed you. Um, me and TJ worked together if you missed our intro podcast, which honestly I don't mind because it was kind of a disaster, but um, uh, me and TJ That's actually... just who we are. <laughs> We're kind of a mess. It, it happens. <laughs> happens to the best of us. Really does. So if you missed our intro podcast, you'll understand that we are not audio engineers in the slightest. And so if you hear, you know, knocking around or popping or anything like that, we do apologize because we're amateurs, obviously. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so let's just jump right into Episode one, first of all, thank you guys so much for checking us out. We really, really appreciate it. Um, just to get some business out of the way, uh, if you're interested in donating to our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com at rock and roll heaven. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, rock and roll LT. And then you can find us on Facebook at rock and roll heaven pod and our Instagram at rock and roll heaven LT, where you'll find a lot of uh, just photo dumps of the subjects of our podcast, some candids of us. For our first episode, um, I actually chose Roy Orbison, and it was actually a suggestion uh, well before this podcast was even conceived of. My dad uh, requested this. So <laughs> the first episodes of this podcast are actually coming from recommendations from my family and from nice. things that I've just wanted to cover from my childhood. So... Well, I'm really glad that you're doing Roy Orbison, too, because I know some of his songs, but very, very few, and I have a feeling I should know more than I actually do about him, so I'm excited to hear you talk about him. You know, my mother, in all of her infinite wisdom, would only play oldies. I didn't know music was made after, like, 1978 <laughs> until I got my own That radio. actually explains quite a bit about you, Lindley. <laughs> living in the past i like vintage clothing but you know hey, that music was awesome and it's timeless for a reason and people still listen to it and it influenced so much of what we listen to today anyways so more power to you i would like to say uh just at the top of the show that my sources that i got this from was uh royorbison.com they had a great section on there about uh his biography uh there's a book called only the lonely by alan clayson uh, and Legends of Rock and Roll by, oh God, I'm going to butcher this name, James Hogue, H-O-A-G, and uh, a Rolling Stone article that was written shortly after his death by Steve Pound and, of course, Wikipedia, because mm -hmm. that's where you get all of your information from. So <laughs> the story is kind of cobbled together from those sources. So Roy Kelton Orbison was born on April 23rd, 1936 at 3.30 p.m. in Vernon, Texas. His parents married in 1932 when they were only 19. Orby Lee, who is a mechanic and an oil well driller, and Nadine Orbison, who is a nurse, would go on to have three sons, and their names were Grady, Roy, and Sammy. 
And Roy would say that his parents were the single biggest influences on his life. Uh, He would spend all day with his dad in the garage, sitting by the cars while his dad was underneath it. And he would just like watch him changing tires and fitting brake linings. And this would be something that Roy would carry his whole life, would be a love affair with automobiles and motorcycles. And you will see how that becomes a tragedy later. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, he, he could actually, like, at an extremely young age, he could take apart a car engine and then put it back together. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. I cannot do that. I couldn't put Legos together. <laughs> Much as anything, like, worked. I would just leave them in strategic places waiting for my parents to step on them. I didn't actually have my first Lego set until uh, about two years ago. <laughs> and- <laughs> which, is, which maybe is sad. I don't know. But, uh, you know, my fiance... He heard that I didn't, haven't ever built a Lego set. And so after we saw the Lego movie, which, you know, I'm not going to lie. We wa- we watched it and we loved it. And he so he bought me my first Lego set that Valentine's Day uh, of the Unikitty Kingdom. <laughs> and it was so much fun to put together. I'm not going to lie. Even as an adult, it's still fun. Fun fact about me is I love doing puzzles. Yeah. You know, like putting a puzzle together, you know, jigsaw puzzles. But, um... I can't – I'm not allowed to have any. Oh, no. Why not? Um, their names are Cheddar, Veruca, and oh, yeah. Lefty. So, unfortunately for Roy and Sammy, they actually picked up another habit other than working on cars from their dad, which was smoking. And I'm just <laughs> going to go ahead and say it. I am a former smoker. I am in the process of becoming a former smoker. We're going to get her help, guys. Still, I.e., I'm still – Half a smoker. Here's a fun fact. Um, As for drinking, Roy said, I had a big drink of whiskey once. I asked my father what it was, and he told me, and I asked, can I have some? And he said, sure. And so he took it and slugged a big shot of whiskey, and he thinks he was sick for days. That turned him off drinking forever, and he never picked up a drink again. From their dad, Grady and Sammy grew taller and darker and fuller than Roy, who was, he was a slighter build and he had a washed out complexion and he got that because he had a bout of jaundice and so he would go on to say because of the way that he looked i was totally anonymous i mean i was unknown even at my home you have this kid who is kind of slowly being distanced from his family because he's not the loud boisterous kid he's more of like the slight small shy pale kid who is kind of an introvert and uh, all of the or- Orbison children were affected with poor eyesight. And so your, uh, Roy used to use thick corrective lenses from an early age, and he was not confident about his appearance and started dyeing his nearly white hair black when he was still young. Roy, throughout his life, was not a loud or boisterous guy. He was just super polite. And that was something that I came across in like everything that I was reading about him was that he was just the nicest guy He was not, he would never act out. He would never laugh really loud or be boisterous like other people would. So even if people were like super rowdy and like knee slapping, guffawing, he would just kind of sit there like quietly and just take everything in and just give like a small smile, which (laughs) I think is like, that says a lot. That's really sweet. One last thing about Roy's character, even as late as 1966, so like prime hippie time. So we're talking like the guys are wearing you know, these outlandish outfits and they have their super long hair and they're putting flowers in them. Roy said, I'm going to do this in my best Roy voice. Okay. That's, we're going to do <laughs> Roy, 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 Roy voice. As a male, 
I personally don't like feminine hair on men, and I imagine women don't like it either, he added. However, if fellas are wearing their hair, not just to be different, but because they like it, then I say that's great. The important thing is to be yourself. Aw, Roy. But that's, like, so sweet. That's sweet. Thank you. <laughs> for his sixth birthday, Roy asked for a mouth harp, which we know is a harmonica. Yes. But you got to remember, this was the 40s in Texas, in a very yeah. small town in Texas. Um, I, I would bet... I would bet that there's still quite a few people that still call it a mouth harp. See, I thought the mouth harp was the thing that was like, bing, 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 bing. <laughs> you put it on a comb with a sheet of paper. No, I honestly bing, don't bing, know bing, what bing. that is called. Uh, if if one of you do, feel free to tweet us uh, and let us know what it's called. Please tweet us at uh, rock and roll LT. So we asked for our harmonica. Basically, his dad was like, well, okay, you want a harmonica, but would you rather have a guitar? So Roy actually jumped at the chance to get a guitar and Orby, his dad, is generally credited with teaching uh, Roy how to play the guitar, but he learned from Charlie Orbison, which is or- Orby Lee's uh, brother, and Kenneth Schultz, a brother of Nadine's, and together with Clois Russell, uh, which was Orby Lee's neighbor and uh, one of his uh, co-workers. And they would often sing and play uh, well into the night, and so Roy figured out, like, if he learned how to play and sing, that he could actually stay up later. Ah, <laughs> so he was sneaky, like, sneaky. Yeah, he was a little tricky guy. At the age where he got his guitar, his left hand wasn't big enough to fully shape the chords. And so he actually, the first song that he ever learned on the guitar was You Are My Sunshine, which is Aww. adorable. He, he said later that by age seven, which I don't know about you, but I had... Not the faintest clue what I wanted to be when I grew up when I was seven. I did, but it changed a lot. I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, I always wanted to be if an actor, listened, but... If you listened to the, to the intro podcast... <laughs> that talks- yeah, but you went... That was college. <laughs> yeah. And I still didn't know what I wanted to be, apparently, when I grew up. <laughs> I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Oh, no, I know what I want to be. What do you want to be? A kid. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't want to grow up. Nap. I give up. I give up. I want to nap and and watch cartoons and be done. See, if I could <laughs> if I could go back to any point in time, it would probably be in middle school so I could actually start paying attention to the things that people were saying. Like, maybe I could understand math. Oh, I love math. I'm a weirdo. But see, there's a weird thing. How are sometimes. we friends? But the, but the math correlates to the music. Well, maybe that's why if you listen to the intro podcast, you'll understand that I got kicked out of band (laughs) and math because I was reading the Babysitter's Club. Uh, No, I mean, yeah, I think when I was seven, well, when I was seven, I wanted to be a singer because let's be honest, I always wanted to be a singer in the background, but then was told, you know, to have the realistic goal. And so then I think at seven, it may have been astronaut because, you know, that's more realistic. Wow. (laughs) You know that there are more singers than there are astronauts. Yes, I do. (laughs) 
Well, he said uh, at age seven, he said, I was finished, you know, for anything else that music was going to be his life. The Orbison family moved to Fort Worth sometime in 1942. And in Fort Worth, they found uh, employment in the uh, munitions and aircraft factories that had been expanded during America's entry into World War II. So due to an epidemic of polio in 1944, Roy and his eldest brother, Grady, were actually sent back to live with their maternal grandmother in Vernon. And Roy wrote his first song, which was called A Vow of Love, in front of his grandmother's house that same year. And in 1945, he entered to win a contest on KVWC in Vernon. I didn't look this up, but I don't know if that's still a radio station. So this, uh, he entered a contest, and it led to having his own radio show singing the same songs every Sunday, which sounds kind of boring, but then again, it's That's the 40s. That's the life. <laughs> Not going to lie. That is the life, honestly. I mean, you sing the same songs over, over and, and over and over again. again, so you better like them. Yeah, but then somebody had to, like, listen to them. <laughs> like, True. <laughs> like, there had to be a need to hear You Are My Sunshine every Sunday. Yeah, but think about it. I mean, you you sit and listen to your favorite songs repeatedly all the time anyway, so then there yeah, you go. I felt so bad for Will and at when least Frozen it's only came on a out. Weekly basis. Yeah, when Frozen came out, I felt so bad for Will because uh I'm like a toddler. <laughs> like <laughs> like Bohemian Rhapsody isn't even out on D V D yet and we've seen it four times. So I'm so jealous. Oh, I know, I missed movie night. Yeah, you did. I know I did. You know, I'll just watch Bohemian Rhapsody again. <laughs> I know all the words by now. Maybe I we should just... do that after the next recording. <laughs> uh, done. It's a date. Doi. <laughs> okay. Saturday. Every Saturday. So it was a, he sang the same songs every Saturday. So I thought it would be a church day. You would, oh. Like it was church, but it's not. Church yeah, but day. Was he singing it for the radio station? Yeah, he was singing well, it for the radio station. Well, then that's why it's not church day. It's on a Saturday. Uh, <laughs> in 1946, a medicine show came to town, and Roy entered the talent contest singing Mountain Dew and Joel Blanc. And I did not know this about Joel Blanc, but uh, it's considered the Cajun national anthem. And really? I, yeah, I've I've okay. I listened to a couple different versions of the song. And the one I felt like, uh, what's the word? The most Cajunist? No, the least Cajunist <laughs> version of it was Bruce Springsteen actually did a cover of it. Really? <laughs> yeah. And um, it was Roy's, it was his favorite song. So Joe Blonde was his favorite song. But he couldn't understand a single word that the singer was singing. So he'd keep putting his finger on the record to try to keep it, you know, like slow it down so he could understand it. <laughs> so he knows the melody and he knows kind of what they're saying but not really <laughs> so he performed those two songs and he tied for first place with a 15 year old kid and the total prize was 15 dollars. and so he got seven dollars and 50 cents which i can only imagine was like that was actually probably a lot of money probably pretty good because when was it how old was he at that point this was 1946 okay so he was he was like no what is it? 10 he was 10 he was okay. 10 he was 10 and then he gave his buddy half that for carrying his guitar, which... Wow, that's really nice. I mean, that's, like, really sweet. Like, you carried my guitar. Here's half of my prize winnings. Okay, so if he made $4.25 in 1946, then it would be worth... That was $58.16. So it's not as much as we thought it was, but that's still pretty that's good. still pretty good. I guess, you know... 
that's still pretty good. If I won 50 bucks. Doing you what you loved? Like, yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're 10. Yeah. If I won $50 when I was 10, I think I was oh, rich. Dude, it would be over. <laughs> you put that into a rollover 401k and a Roth uh, IRA when you're 10. I don't even have that now. <laughs> oh, I do have a 401k from work, but... <laughs> So when the war was over, the family reunited in Vernon and soon moved out to Wink, Texas in late 1946. And then he formed his first band when he was 13 in 1949, and then called themselves the Wink Westerners. Oh, that's, that's cute. That's actually, yeah, that's a really cute. Little... I didn't form my first band until I was 30, so I'm way behind. I mean, the thing you're going <laughs> to learn about this podcast is that these people started really early. Oh, Yeah. And then, you know, just stomped everyone else underneath them. I mean... Pretty much. That's why I'm really good at Tetris. <laughs> in 1959, Roy had been appearing regularly on KERB radio. Is that still... Does that still exist? Sure. <laughs> in, in Kermit, <laughs> Texas. And by 1953, the band had gotten their own show on KERB, which is sponsored by local businessmen. And then... Uh, the Wink Westerners had their first, like, live appearance at a school assembly, and they were also featured on the KERB Jamboree on Saturday afternoons with local country western bands. I would like uh, to interject. Yes. It does look like KERB is still active. My God, did you learn how to use Google? Yes. She can, she can learn. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to use Google if I know what I'm looking for. <laughs> If there was more of, more of an issue that I didn't know what to type in to get the information I, I wanted. Screaming it. <laughs> Just do inflation calculator. Give me a minute. <laughs> what? It's inflation calculator. <laughs> At one of the band's gigs in uh, the McCammy's Lion Club, someone actually offered them uh, money to perform, which was like a big deal. And then some of the sources that I looked at and I couldn't find it, like this information in a lot of places, which I feel like if it was real, it would have been more than one spot. So take this for a grain of salt. But uh, some of my sources say that they were paid four hundred dollars. Wow. So I mean, that's that's a far cry from the four dollars and twenty five cents he won. Yeah. I mean, what's that? What's that? What year you know was it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's say nineteen fifty two. Three thousand seven hundred. $83.68. Ooh, down to the penny. Yeah. Nice. So, Yay, internet. <laughs> but that seems like that seems like a lot of money in that time to play an unknown band to have them like play at a school assembly, doesn't it? That seems yeah, it That's, seems the, extreme. It seems extreme. And so uh so take that $400 with a grain of salt. Uh, Roy graduated from Wink High School in June of 1954 and signed up to, uh, to attend the fall semester at North Texas State College, which was in Denton. And uh, he actually studied geology because he thought it could help him get jobs with oil companies if, like, the whole music thing didn't work out. So, so he was studying rock? <laughs> I couldn't resist the pun. <laughs> It was great to watch it happen, though, because, like, you just, like, direct eye contact, slide up to the mic, and you're like... I got really excited for that pun. (laughs) (laughs) He returned home for Christmas and played the New Year's Dance on December 31st, 1954, with the Wink Westerners. So he's been with this band for a while. 
Like they've yeah. been they've been together for eight years now. So they've been performing with each other for eight yeah, that's years. Really, that's impressive. That's really impressive. Considering they started so young. Yeah. And then college happened. And well, puberty happened. Yeah. Oh, wait. We're not at college yet. We're getting to college. We're getting to college. Okay. Yeah. So he, he graduated in 1954 and then uh, went to Denton to study geology, which is where you get your <laughs> fantastic rock pun. <laughs> so he's in college in 1954 and he performs the Wink Westerners. And uh, Wade Lee Moore and Dick Printer were two of his college friends at Denton. And they had written a song called Ooby Dooby. <laughs> so this song, Ooby Dooby, like you can actually I, – I, I, I went on YouTube and I actually found Roy, like old footage of Roy singing this song. And it seemed like something that I had heard before that was in like the back of my head. So if you go onto YouTube and you look up the song, you, you probably know it. Oh, okay. and you just probably don't know it by name. And Dick had actually arranged for them to record the song at Jim Beck's studio on the outskirts of Dallas, Texas, which is uh, southeast of Denton, which is very important information that you're going to need to know later. That's not true. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, do I really need to write it down? <laughs> okay, so Beck had been instrumental in the discovery of Lefty Frizzell and Marty Robbins for Columbia Records. And so the band headed to Dallas to record uh, Ooby Dooby and Hey Miss Fanny, which uh, appears to be a duet of Roy Orbison and James Morrow. And the session took place at some point during the summer of 1955 before the boys returned to West Texas. And Roy convinced that that he would be signed to Columbia Records after uh, the executives heard him, and that didn't happen. The Wink Westerners kept performing on TV, and then they played dances on the weekends, and attended college during the day. And so you'll see like this through line of Roy is just not living that stereotypical rock lifestyle that we we think of when we think of like right. You know, a rock star is like snorting cocaine at 6 years old <laughs> and you know dropping out uh, of high school and then, you know, burning out really fast. It was just that they would attend college. So he actually switched colleges and enrolled at Odessa Junior College in the fall of 55, also, again, uh, majoring in geology. Uh, But then he changed it to history and English. And so the band moved together to a duplex uh, on Walnut Street in Odessa. So if you guys are from Odessa, you can actually maybe still visit that spot. Could you maybe Google and see if that's – I'm kidding. (laughs) Put the phone down. I don't need to know if the apartment complex still exists. I can find out. (laughs) With a couple new members, they renamed themselves something that might be a little bit more familiar to you, which is the Teen Kings. More of a noticeable name because this is this is the part where we start getting into stuff that I was like super familiar with. And they played more rock and roll. They got a second weekly TV show on Saturdays from 430 to 5 on KOSA TV, Channel 7, Woo. Odessa, um, which was part of a uh, national CBS network. So – Basically, like, they're starting to get into syndication because at that point, you know, they're still doing, like, local TV shows. And so it was a bigger channel for them. That's when here are two major familiar names for you. And both of them will be covered on this podcast at some point. Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley came into town to perform. And they both appeared on Roy's TV show. Who that? Elvis Presley and Johnny (laughs) (laughs) Cash. You're looking at me like... Once again, guys, uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you know who Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash are, I'll be looking for a new host. 
We record because you were looking at me like you were waiting for me to not know who they were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just a a little side note, fun fact, Elvis was actually only a year older than Roy. So, I mean, they're still kids at this time. Yeah. So Roy asked Johnny, Johnny Cash, um, advice on how to get his record release. And Cash gave him Sam Phillips telephone number uh, in Memphis. And Roy actually tried to call Mr. Phillips, who hung up the phone after screaming, Johnny Cash doesn't run my record company. Ouch. Yeah. Due to the initial rejection from Sam Phillips, uh, the the Teen Kings actually recorded Ubi Doobie for the Odessa-based Gelwell label. And according to the official Roy Orbison discography by Marcel Rosecco, this was the first one released by Orbison in March of 1956. And like I said, he would eventually come around. Phillips was actually impressed with the song after a local record store owner, Papa Hollifield, played it for him over the telephone and offered the Kings a contract in 1956. Oh, wow. So maybe you should have Johnny Cash. Maybe that's the takeaway. Right? Is that you should, or at least listen? If Johnny Cash referred somebody to you, you should maybe at least listen. And so, thus begins the Sun Record years. And for those who don't know, Sun Records is like the iconic recording studio. Like this is, it's in is in (laughs) Memphis. And so, the reason why the Sun Records is so iconic is that a lot of amazing huge names in rock and roll got their start at Sun Records, which included Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. And Sam Phillips didn't actually like the fact that uh, Johnny Cash had made the recommendation and gave out his phone number, but eventually he did give in, you know, and signed them to that recording contract. Uh, the song Ooby Doobie actually, every time I say that, it's just ridiculous to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. Um <laughs> Ubi Doobie peaked at number 59 on the national charts in 1956, selling about 200,000 copies. But the next, Sun Singles didn't chart, and Roy started developing his songwriter talent. So, like, the fact that he didn't do as well with his releases after the first one kind of pushed him to be a better songwriter. Recording at Sun Studios would have been a dream for most people because this is, you know, it's, it's like saying for us that we're playing the Hollywood Bowl. You know, that's... You're recording at Sun Records. Like, that that was a big thing. So, yeah. you know, or you're going to be playing That's, in the Super Bowl. You know, that... Yeah, I think there's there's no argument there. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big deal to have been invited to and record at Sun, at Sun Studios. Yeah, but um, Roy and his band really didn't like it. And, and Phillips was set in his ways and had a certain sound that he wanted to come out of Sun Records. And, and that's, a, again, another thing is, like, you know, if you're on... If you're watching a CBS TV show, it's going to be different than a Fox TV show. You'll see some similarities, but Fox has a different standard than CBS does. So so Phillips had a very specific sound that he wanted coming out of Sun, and Roy and him didn't always have the same vision. And there was also disagreements with the band, which is – this is where you get into the hard stuff is like if I write the baseline for something and then you write the lyrics – who gets the money? Right. So it was, you know, who gets the credit, who gets the royalties, how much royalties should be paid. And not being able to come to terms, the Kings uh, split up in 1956 in December. And then Roy used used studio musicians for his remaining sun sessions. And he stayed there until 1958. 
So he was there for uh, for two years. So that's a for for an artist. You that's know, pretty good. That's pretty good for having for having a run for two years in 1956. So this is this is getting into his personal life. Okay, okay you ready? You want to buckle up for a little bit of romance? Aww. <laughs> Uh, in 1956, Roy met what he called his beautiful dish. Uh, <laughs> That's a, so cute. <laughs> the, 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 no, this dish. gets this gets hard. She was a vivacious, well-built brunette from Houston, Texas, who just happened to be 16. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's one of those times where different kind of things, but still, 16, 16, 16, and he's like 22. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it sounds it, it sounds, sounds really bad, but like ten years from then, it wouldn't have been that bad. Like yeah, twenty six and thirty two wouldn't be bad. Yeah, but twenty two. Just got to get over 16. that eighteen year yeah. hump for it to actually. Yeah, not. Don't, please don't say hump <laughs> <laughs> when talking about sixteen year olds. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so her name was uh, Claudette Frady. Here's the thing: like Roy was so so shy and such an innocent guy. That he never made advances on her. And a few weeks later, weeks, again, different time, yeah. he, she accepted his proposal. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So they actually stayed in Sam Phillips' home. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> but, but here's the thing that was really cute. They actually slept in separate rooms. Aw, okay. In the studio, uh, Roy continued to concentrate on the mechanics of the recording, and Phillips remembered being much more impressed with uh, Roy's mastery of the guitar than with his voice. He wrote a ballad called The Clown, which a Sun Recorder producer, Jack Clement, told him that he would never be a ballad singer. Which is, again, one of those things where it's like, oh, okay. Ouch. Yeah, but that was more like, the time of the crooners though right but uh like later like his later works like crying well yeah that that's a ballad that's yeah but he didn't have like that stereotypical crooner voice roy had some success at sun records um however he was introduced to elvis presley's social circle uh once going to pick up a date for presley in his purple cadillac orbison wrote claudette about Claudette Frady, which he married in 1957. And the Everly Brothers recorded it for their subsequent release of their B-side of their smash hit, All I Have to Do is Dream. You know that song, right? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's a good song. I know that song. Yay! (laughs) I don't know (laughs) for... (laughs) Well, Claudette was a B-side for All I Have to Do is Dream. And so, you know, the B-side is not typically for like the hit right but a they, side is the yeah. it's like your single and your b side is the other one yeah because you had to put something on the other side yeah i know i know these terms <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we finally terms. Some, we finally found something tracy knows about oh <laughs> <laughs> and so that was actually uh the first and probably the only time that he earned royalties from Sun Records, and that actually helped him pay down uh, the money for his own Cadillac, not Elvis's Cadillac. <laughs> also, we just completely glazed over the fact that Elvis had a purple Cadillac. And at this point, his songs were also being recorded by Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Rick Nelson. 
which I think is supposed to be Ricky Nelson. And he was getting increasingly frustrated at Sun Records. So he just gradually stopped recording. And he toured around the music circuit in Texas and then quit performing for seven months after touring with Patsy Cline, Eddie Cochran, and Gene Vincent. And then for a brief period in the 50s, he made his living at Acuff uh, Rose uh, as a songwriter, concentrating mainly on like country music and things like that. So this is like his lesser known stuff, in my opinion. Wesley Bros rapidly got uh, Roy Orbison another contract with a new independent monument records when his RCA deal ran out in mid-1959. And then back in Texas, Roy had been writing with Joe Mendelson, came up with Uptown, which was recorded and released in late 1959. His actual initial success actually happened when the 50s rock and roll era was winding down and Elvis was overseas serving in the U.S. Army, and Jerry Lee Lewis had become a disgrace after marrying his 13-year-old cousin. Ew. Ew. And then, unfortunately, uh, yet another subject of this podcast, eventually, uh, Buddy Holly had died in a plane crash. And so all of these prominent rock and roll kind of pioneers had either been disgraced, passed away, or, you know, were otherwise preoccupied. So starting in 1960, the chart in the United States became dominated by teen idols and novelty acts and uh, Motown girl groups, which I am okay with. I'm okay with that, too. I am totally fine because we got some amazing music. And we will absolutely be covering Motown years because that's that's the music that I grew up on. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. We have to. The third single for Fred Foster's Monument label was Only the Lonely, which became the first song that that totally showed the potential of Roy Orbison's voice and established his uniqueness. And at first, Orbison and uh, Mendelssohn tried to pitch it to Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers, but they all turned it down. And so they instead uh, recorded the song at RCA's Nashville, uh, Nashville studio, trying a completely new strategy. And so this is like one of those things where it's one of those like aha moments Mm. in in music which was they built the mix from the top down rather than the bottom up beginning with the the closely mic'd backing vocals in the foreground and ending with the rhythm section in the background and this combination kind of became Roy Orbison's trademark sound only the lonely shot to number two on the billboard hot 100 and hit number one in the UK and Australia and the song peaked at number two on the Billboard charts and became number one in the UK. And so that was week two. And then came Running Scared. Uh, based loosely on uh, the rhythm of the Ravel Bellero, the song was about a man on the lookout for his girlfriend's previous boyfriend who he feared would try to take her away. Orbison encountered difficulty when he found himself unable to hit the song's high note without his voice breaking. Uh, He was backed by an orchestra in the studio, and Porter told him that he would have to sing louder than his accompaniment because the orchestra was unable to be softer than his voice. And so here's this guy trying to sing with (laughs) an orchestra behind him, and you can't hear the singer because the orchestra's too loud. And they're like, you have to sing louder, dude. (laughs) Which probably would be fill him with terror because he's, you know, this shy, polite guy, and he doesn't want to belt and be... Yeah. So loud. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine? And then on subsequent times of you trying to hit the high note, your voice breaks. Like yeah. that's, God, that you would be so. You, yeah, because you're pushing or you're, you know, 
<clears throat> yeah. amplifying or you start wearing out your voice because you're oversing you know, oversinging or pushing that voice so to its limits, you know. And in front of a crowd. Yeah. Like of other musicians. And if you push your voice too hard too, I mean you lose some of those really beautiful moments and and kind of that quality of voice too. Yeah. So uh, Fred Foster actually had a um, a way to fix this. He actually had a solution for this. Uh, he actually put Roy in the corner of the studio and surrounded him with cor- uh, coat racks. And it, it was basically an isolation booth for him. So he stuck a microphone in there and, like, covered Roy with coat racks so that he couldn't see the orchestra. The orchestra couldn't see him. Wow. And... Uh, Orbison was really unhappy with the first two takes. In the third, he abandoned the idea of using falsettos and finally sang the high A naturally. And it was so astonishing to everyone present that the musicians actually stopped playing. Oh, wow. So he hit the note so well that people were like, well, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Running Scared hit number one in the United States. There were a few things that contributed to Roy Orbison's success with this. The song, the production, and the performance were key factors. And the songs were completely original in structure, sound, and style. And if you actually go back and, like, listen to Running Scared, you'll see how that differs from something like Satisfaction, you know, with the Rolling Stones who were building it uh, the traditional way. And they were still doing, like, things that were new and inventive and rock and roll is still a baby, but... You know, you can tell the audio difference between them and what right. it's meant to focus on. And this kind of composition of the music didn't exist till then, and it became a style. Fred Foster really went for quality instead of quantity, and so he was willing to spend a lot of money on a session without any guarantee of a payback. Just knowing that the, the song was good was enough for him and he was willing to take a chance on a sound that didn't conform to the acceptable marketing norms of the time at this time like i was saying like motown and teen idols are now coming into vogue and so the sound that roy was making it's a good thing that it was new because if he had been doing the same stuff that he'd been doing before it wouldn't have been as innovative and he might not have had as such a cultural impact as he did so fred foster really really attributed a lot to the success of Roy. So after that, he had a massive string of hits, and that's when he produced Crying, Candyman, Dream Baby, Working for the Man, Leah, In Dreams, which we'll talk about later, Pretty Paper, Blue Bayou, uh, The Mean Woman Blues, and It's Over, and this became an unbroken string of top 40 hits that lasted four years. Wow. Uh, Roy became one of the top-selling American artists and one of the biggest names in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean the world. And during that time, just checking back in with his personal life, Roy had a second son named Anthony King Orbison, who was born in 1986. And his first son had been born in 1958, which was one year after he married Claudette. So she was 17 years old. Okay, so here's a crazy story. In May 1963, Roy got to tour England on a bill that had the Beatles. <laughs> I'm looking at you like, just any kind of recognition. Yes. It just, do, do we know who the Beatles are? Yes, I know who the Beatles are. I nodded. 
<laughs> and then at this time, the Beatles meant nothing to the people in the United States. And so uh, Beatlemania hadn't hit yet. But the tour sold out in an afternoon. And you got to think, like, for it to sell out in an afternoon, there wasn't an internet. Like, yeah. you actually had to... to Physically go to, go to a line and buy tickets. Yeah. You had to, like, yeah. put your little 1960s hat on... <laughs> Because everybody wore hats. And your 1960s and then, shoes and, and your jacket. Your jacket and, and <laughs> so many buttons. There are so, so many, buttons. many buttons. So and many buttons just to go buy concert tickets. And then, and, then, and then go get into your giant car, which is like a boat, and then and drive it through traffic to – I don't – Ticketmaster didn't exist, so I don't even – would they go to the venue? I don't know. Well, you go to the box office. So I think at the venue. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not I'm not up know. on my, my well, purchasing. Well, they still have, I guess they still have box offices, too. And, like, you used to be able to buy them at department stores, I think, maybe. But back then, I don't know. So if know. we have any like, older listeners, please tweet yeah, us. Please, to please tell us let how us you, know. How did you or buy tickets? Or email us or whatever. <laughs> let us know how you used to buy tickets. I mean, I'm 40 almost, but I... I, I how did you buy tickets in the 60s? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Siri. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it sold out in an afternoon, which meant people were mobbing the box office. We're just going to yeah. go with box office. So, so to sell out. Well, for in, sure, it was a box office, just a matter of where the box office was. Yeah. Or if there were so multiple So many buttons. So just many buttons. so many buttons. <laughs> and then no, no credit cards, I don't think. So you maybe, possibly had to go to maybe the din- bank. Maybe Diners Club at the time. Could, I don't know. I think there was maybe a couple at the time. I if anyone know. was alive during 1963, <laughs> please use Twitter and tell us how you bought tickets. Seriously, this is a thing. Um, okay. So uh, so Beatlemania wasn't like a thing yet. So Roy had never heard of them. And he was like super annoyed. So he actually asked this out loud. He's like, what's a beetle? <laughs> And so all of a sudden he felt a tap on his shoulder and he turned around and guy looked him directly in the face and said, I am. (laughs) He said, I am. (laughs) And that guy was John Lennon. Nice. (laughs) So um, opening night, Roy opted to go on the stage first. And although he was the more established act, so usually you know how we have – opening acts and then but Roy wanted to play first just to kind of get it over with <laughs> and um known for having like a super raucous show and having a ton of energy so he he learned kind of that the Beatles were these like high energy make the women scream kind of guys like their performance style was right. was pretty outrageous, and he they'd like whip their fans into a frenzy. So, so uh, Roy was like, "I'll go on first because his style, as we'll talk about a little later, was just not. He wasn't like that. He, he wasn't was, as he was the opposite flamboyant. of that. He didn't he didn't dance. He didn't move. Like he just stood there. Just so, got up and sang. Yeah, got up and sang. Um, and so, uh. Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Starr stood dumbfounded backstage as they watched Orbison perform completely still. 
And then finally, the audience started chanting, we want Roy, we want Roy. Uh, On the first night, Roy did 14 encores. Oh, wow. (laughs) Before the Beatles could even... That's a whole other show. (laughs) Yeah. Before the Beatles could even get on stage, and he would have done more, but Lennon and McCartney... ran out of songs. No. (laughs) Lennon and McCartney stepped in front of him and physically held him back. So, like, <laughs> like Roy's like, like, I'll do a couple more songs. And they're like, it's like no, it's our turn. <laughs> let, let us play. <laughs> so uh, Ringo later said in Glasgow, we were all backstage listening to this tremendous applause that he was getting. And he was just standing there, not moving or anything. And throughout the tour, uh, they actually learned to get along with each other. And uh, – it was a process that was made easier because the Beatles actually really respected and really admired Roy's work and his music. And uh, he felt a kinship with John Lennon, but it was Harrison, which uh, he would later form a really, really strong relationship with. And that would be uh, his bandmate in the Traveling Willies. So later... Later, he would become his bandmate in the Traveling Wilburys, which we will get to later. Yeah. Uh, now we're getting into the the world, kind of his style, mm-hmm. like both his clothing and his like performance. So uh, he mm-hmm. eventually developed a persona and an image that didn't reflect his personality. He didn't have a publicist in the 1960s, and so he wasn't pushed to be in like the fan magazines and. Even, like, when he had a single, his picture wasn't on the sleeve. And so he had almost, like... No presence. No presence, no visibility. People didn't know what he looked like. Uh, And Life actually called him the anonymous celebrity. And... That's rough. (laughs) Yeah. That's super rough. (laughs) But here's another, like, one of those moments in rock history that if something hadn't happened, like, what we consider iconic now... Right. Would would not exist. And so um, he actually left his thick eyeglasses on an airplane in 1963 while he was on tour with the Beatles. And he was forced to wear his prescription Wayfair sunglasses on stage. And from that moment on, he found out that he preferred them. And so on stage and off, he would wear sunglasses. So, like, nice. when you're thinking about Roy Orbison – like try to picture him without those glasses on and you just you can't because they've come they've become so iconic and ingrained in like that that lexicon of you know what you're looking at and thinking about is like you know when you think about you know steven tyler do you see him with a crew cut no no (laughs) (laughs) no i do not it's a funny thing that like because he was wearing sunglasses and he never appeared on his his uh, album covers and he really didn't move when he was performing. People just assumed that he was blind. Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> so uh, his black clothes also led to people thinking that he was blind because, you know, you don't want to have a colorful wardrobe and not be able to see it. Right. <laughs> so, okay, his dark and brooding persona combined with his tremendous voice and his lovelorn ballads really kind of marketed to, like, the moody teenagers, and it made Orbison a star in the early 60s. And Orbison also excused his motionless performances by saying, like, the reason why he didn't move a lot were his songs didn't allow it. 
when he performed, his songs didn't really allow him to, you know, dance and move and shake like people like Elvis were doing. Right. You know, or the Beatles. He was aware of his uh, unique performance style in the early 1960s. He says, I'm not a super personality on stage or off. I mean, you could put the works of Chubby Checker or Bobby Rydell in a second-rate show and they'd still shine through. But not me. I have to be prepared. People come to hear my music, my songs, and that's what I'd give them. So, yeah. but again, he's a singer. Now we're getting into Oh, Pretty Woman. And it was recorded on August 1st, 1964, written by Roy together with his new writing partner, Bill Dees. And this actually stemmed from a comment that Dees made about Claudette. Um, she had, I remember Claudette. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she uh, came by the studio one day to tell Roy that she was going to go shopping. And uh, Roy, this is still kind of, you know, credit cards in their infancy kind of thing. Yeah. So Roy was, you know, polite enough to ask her if she needed money. And so he, she came by and was like, I'm going to go shopping. So he said, do you need any money? And then Bill Dees remarked, oh, a, a pretty woman like that? She doesn't need any money. And that was kind of like the moment for them. And it took them 40 minutes to write it. And it was released in August. And arguably to this day, it's probably one of his most recognizable songs. By most estimates, the song sold about 7 million copies that year. Wow. So that is huge. Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> Several major uh, record companies showed interest in Orbison after his tenure with Monument was up, and MGM offered him $1 million. Sorry. Oh. I, I mean, that's a lot. That's a, that is a lot, especially yeah. then. Uh, the first single right away was a modest success, but it would be the biggest single in the U.S. that Roy would have for over 20 years. Uh, so... It was a huge turn for him just changing record labels because in that time, Monument Records was about, like, the quality of the sound that they were putting out. And MGM was about the quality or about the quantity. Right. So MGM was all about the quantity of records put out. And that really took its toll on Roy. And and you could hear that reflected in the songs that came out during the MGM years. And then the touring came. And it really took a toll on his personal life. And so uh, his wife, Claudette, started having an affair with the contractor who built their home in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And the friends and the relatives attribute the breakdown of the marriage to her being young and bored. Yeah. So, you know, young and bored. In November 1964... Claudette and Roy divorced over her infidelities, though they still stayed in touch. And actually, Roy was riding a motorcycle on a racetrack in front of, like, a ton of screaming fans. Mm -hmm. And he laid the bike down and broke his foot. And and while he was in the hospital, Claudette came and visited him, and that kind of, Rekindled everything. Yeah. So they actually uh, remarried in 1965. And they shared a love of motorcycles. Remember how I said that this is going to come up later? Yes. So Claudette grew up and around motorcycles as well as Roy having that love from his 
father working on them. And so this would actually kick off uh, Roy's darkest times in his life. On June 6, 1966, Claudette and Roy were heading back home from a motorcycle holiday when a truck driver pulled out in front of her bike. And she died in Roy's arms. Oh, poor Roy. So she was dead at 25. And Roy was devastated to lose his beautiful wife and the tragic lyrics and haunting melodies of Too Soon to Know, which reached number three in on the British charts just two months later. He has just buried his wife. And so basically he just throws himself into work, which is, for me, that's completely relatable. That's how I get over anything. Oh, yeah. And especially when you are in a creative, if when you're a creative person like that, it helps you to go through all that to to be working on on your music and writing lyrics and and writing songs to help you pull through those kind of moments yeah mgm approved him with a movie deal and it was a script that um was pitched to elvis but he turned it down called the fastest guitar alive and and i found a um (laughs) the synopsis on imdb uh says the south is losing the civil war and the coffers are nearly empty a group of Confederate spies steal a shipment of gold in San Francisco and attempt to deliver it to the Confederate generals in El Paso. Others know about the gold and seek to steal it from them, but the spies have a secret weapon. A guitar that shoots bullets. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wish I was making that up. I'm not making that up. Like you Did can that find movie some- get made? Yes. Oh no! It got made, and oh, no. and Roy was actually really pleased with the film, but it was a total flop. Like it was, <laughs> it was so bad that MGM had contracted Roy to do five films, and that never happened. <laughs> Aww. Um. So it was during a British tour two years later on September fourteenth that tragedy struck again when horrifically two of his three sons lost their lives in a house fire. Uh, Roy Dwayne Orbison was 10 years old, and his brother Anthony was just six. And um, and here's something really sweet is that Johnny Cash actually bought the burned building and the land and tore everything down and built an orchard on top of the former site of his home. So basically in two years, he's lost two of his sons and his wife. Oh, so, so he was unable to write songs in the wake of such a crushing loss, but Roy nonetheless continued to tour, seeking solace in music and the support of his fans. And then Roy met a German teenager. <laughs> How old is Roy now? Because this time around it may be <laughs> gross. <laughs> He's in his 30s. Aw, come on, Roy. We don't know what teenager. She could be 19. I couldn't I wasn't I wasn't about to do math cuz I think we've already determined that I can't do math. <laughs> so um so Roy met a German teenager by the name of Barbara Ann Marie Vilkeman Jacobs or Jacobs. It could be Look, this isn't this isn't pronounced this correctly podcast, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um in August in Leeds, England, and she moved to the U.S. in the late nineteen in late nineteen sixty eight, and they got married in Nashville in nineteen sixty nine, starting a brand new life uh, with a brand new house just one block away from where Roy's old house stood in Hendersonville, and Roy and Barbara had a son, 
uh, Roy Kelton in 1970 and another, Alexander, in 1975. And then tragedy struck again. Uh. I know. In 1963, he found out that his uh, older brother, Grady... 63? 73. Okay. 73. That his older brother, Grady, and Helen Selman died in a car accident when they swerved off the road and slammed into a utility pole. Uh, They were trapped in the wreckage for some time, and she was pinned in the car, and he was trapped underneath it. And they were both pronounced dead on arrival. He was 40, and she was 42, and they were on their way home to see Roy for Thanksgiving. So Hmm. in late 1977, Orbison was not feeling well uh, and decided to overwinter in Hawaii, which I guess overwinter is like a holiday. Well, I think it's probably like a longer vacation of like you're going to stay there throughout the whole winter. So so more than a couple weeks, like you're there for a while, a month or so. Yeah. A month or more, probably. You just didn't like not be cold. Yeah. (laughs) So while he was there, he checked into a hospital and they discovered that he had several obstructed coronary arteries. So on January 18th, 1978, yes, he underwent a triple coronary bypass. He had suffered from ulcers since the early 1960s and had been a heavy smoker since adolescence. And he felt revitalized following the triple bypass, which... (laughs) Okay. I feel worse after you cleaned out all of my heart. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't quit smoking. So heavy touring and life on the road and undergoing open heart surgery, uh, he was actually back on the road three weeks later just to prove he could do it. <laughs> Which I feel like at that point, you can slow down. Yeah, no joke. I mean... You've, you've been through a little bit. That's kind of a silly point to prove of, oh, yeah, this is no problem at all. I can totally get back on the road and, and deal with this arduous and strenuous schedule right after open heart surgery. This will have no negative consequences. None whatsoever, I'm None sure. <laughs> so about this time, things started to look brighter for Roy. He was still you know, selling a decent amount of records, but... Linda Ronsat had a huge hit with Blue Bayou and sold somewhere around seven or eight million copies. Yes, she did. And it's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in 1981, he and Emmy Lou Harris won a Grammy for their duet, That Loving You Feeling Again. From It was from a comedy film uh, called Roadie, which he had a cameo role in, which I probably assume was a little bit more successful than the fastest guitar. <laughs> fastest guitar. Alive. And things were picking up. It was the first time that he had ever won a Grammy, and he felt like he was ready to make a full return to pop music. And it would be a couple more years before this would come to fruition. And in that that time, Van Halen actually released a hard rock cover of Oh Pretty Woman, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I will admit I have not heard that, but uh, it's a fun cover. (laughs) I may have to look that up. It is a fun, fun cover. (laughs) And uh, it was on their 1982 album, uh, Driver Down. And again, Don McLean did the same thing with Crying. And his rejuvenation process had started. And his version went unexpectedly to, to the top of the charts after hitting number five in the U.S. and staying on the charts for 15 weeks. And it hit number one in the U.K. for three weeks. And it also topped the Irish charts. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. like these 
this is bringing Roy to a completely new audience, which might not have heard him before because, you know, Roy might not have been your cup of tea, but maybe Van Halen was, you know? So, <laughs> so he's getting <laughs> entirely possible. He was getting introduced to an entirely new uh, audience. Orbison was reaching like the weirdest places like Bulgaria. That's not that weird. Bulgaria in 1982. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he was actually, he was shocked to find out how popular he was that he actually had to like board himself into his hotel when he went on tour in Bulgaria uh, in Sofia because people would mob him on the streets. Oh, geez. So he had to like lock himself in his hotel. Um, and then uh, filmmaker David Lynch had reached out to him uh, for a new movie that he was doing to allow him to use one of the songs. Orbison originally declined his request to allow the use of In Dreams for the film Blue Velvet, and Lynch used it anyway, although his first choice was actually crying. Lynch, without Roy's permission, used uh, In Dreams, and the song served as one of the several obsessions of a character named Frank Booth, and, and that was played by Dennis Hopper. And it was lip-synced by a drug dealer played by Dean Stockwell, uh, after which Booth demanded the song be played over and over once again while beating the protagonist while the song played. Uh, and during the film, Lynch had asked for the song to be played repeatedly to give it this surreal atmosphere. And Roy saw the movie and was initially shocked at his use. And he saw the film in a theater in Malibu, and he said he was mortified because they were talking about the candy-colored clown in relation to a dope deal. And I thought, what in the world? <laughs> and I can just hear that in Roy's voice. <laughs> but later on, when he was touring, they got the video out, and they would watch it again. And he really started to appreciate what Lynch had given to the song, which is a really interesting way to put it, because it wasn't that the song made the film. It was that the film gave something new to the song. And it achieved an otherworldly quality that added to this, the, the whole, it gave it a whole new dimension. So he has this new facet. And it, it just, for me, it seems like once Roy figured out that his music could be taken that way and, and placed on celluloid like that and, to create a mood and an atmosphere that he started to, you know, be more open to things like that. So uh, it was announced that Roy was going to be inducted into the second annual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York on January the 21st, 1987. He was actually inducted by Bruce Springsteen, which, you know, as I was talking about before, actually yeah. did a cover of uh, the, the song Joe Blonde. Yeah. Uh, who said, in 1975, I went into the studio to make Born to Run. I wanted to make a record with words like Bob Dylan that sounded like Phil Spector, but most of all, I wanted to sing like Roy Orbison. And right after this, Roy signed with Virgin Records, who immediately re-released the greatest hits tape on LP uh, called In Dreams, Greatest Hits. And there are a few new songwriting collaborations Along with them, uh, one of them was Jeff Lynne. And new material was being recorded for an upcoming Virgin LP in Los Angeles. And their expectations started to grow. 
Uh, so Roy had actually wanted to do a TV show, like a TV special, for a really, really long time. And a couple of them had been recorded, uh, like Roy Orbison at the Los Angeles Country Club and live in Birmingham, Alabama. But nothing ever came close to the beautiful Roy Orbison and Friends, A Black and White Night Live. Which you can actually, not a plug, but you can find it on Amazon. But you oh. have to purchase it. It's not with Prime. Oh. So I did not see it. But you can actually donate to our Patreon. <laughs> there you go. And then Lindley can finally watch this. And then I can watch this watch thing. special. And so <laughs> it was actually shot at the legendary Coconut Grove in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And side note, this is the hotel where RFK was actually assassinated. Oh, okay. So just some geography, history, trying to throw down some knowledge. Knowledge zone. <laughs> <laughs> So the band was what you would consider today to be one of the first, like, super groups. And it was Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Costello, Katie Lang, Tom Waits, Bonnie Ray, Jennifer Warrens, T-Bone Brunette, Jackson Brown, J.D. Sutherland. And they were backed up by Elvis Presley's uh, TCV band, which included James Burton on guitar. So, I mean, he had a couple friends. Just you a know, few. Just a few. Nobody um, of note. I mean... It Just wasn't a few. like <laughs> like if you were looking for talent, don't look at the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel on the night of yeah whatever. You just skip that. <laughs> just skip it. I just mean, skip it. Nobody's nobody important is there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this special was going to air on uh, Cinemax cable TV on January 1988. So like, it's like right after it started, right? Yeah. I mean, that was in like the early days of like hbo instead of like you know now now <laughs> <laughs> um and it was actually released on to video by virgin records which makes sense because you know he was signed with virgin at the time and it sold fifty thousand copies and that was a big watershed moment in roy's career because to have people like actually go out and buy vhs copies right i mean yeah Again, you had to put your 1988 shoes on, and then there was just so much <laughs> hair in 1988. Just so much hair in 1988. All the hair, just flo- like all the hairspray, and then it wasn't even the buttons. It was like the t-shirt clip thing that you put on, you like, you know, and then the leggings, and then <laughs> you had to go to Virgin Records and or Tower Records. Or just tie your, your t-shirt with the scrunchie. We used to do that because we were poor. <laughs> We, we didn't have a special clip for back our in my day. <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have the special T-shirt clips. We just tied it with our scrunchie side ponytail. Yeah, I had the wave, but I feel like the wave was more like ninety, like early. God, 90s. I would give anything to see my like elementary <laughs> yearbook again because <laughs> we had the the bangs. Yeah, the wave. The big wave that you would make with your bangs. Oh, it, ours it looked like a bird's nest because you would like tease it. Oh yeah, and no, we tease just... it and then whoosh, just hit it with all the aquanet <laughs> on the planet. I've never been good with teasing my hair at all. Uh... Let's rock back to Barbara, his second wife. Okay. And so uh, during the 1980s, his wife was actually handling his career and was the executive producer of his uh, 1987 album and dreams greatest hits. Plus the highly acclaimed 1988 television music special. They would actually remain married until his death. 
So Aww. that's a high note for him. Sweet. But I'm bum. Ah, you made a music pun. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's going to happen a lot on this. So. Just a few um, times, I'm sure. So a duet of Crying with Katie Lynn was released as a single and on video, and it gave Roy another Grammy Award. And his collaboration with Jeff Lim was becoming very prolific. Uh, Jeff had just uh, produced George Harrison's Cloud Nine and was working on Roy, uh, Roy's and Tom Perry's material at the same time. It was in 1988 that Orbison began seriously collaborating with uh, Jeff on a new album. And Lynn had just, um, you know, they, they all got together one day and they had lunch. And Harrison actually asked if he wanted to come listen to, uh, or not listen to, record onto my new single. And so George Harrison, Beatle, right. they had been on tour together before and had a great respect for each other. What's uh, was a Beatle? It's me. <laughs> so they were like, can you come sing a song on, you know, one of my new singles? And then they contacted Bob Dylan, who in turn allowed them to use the recording studio in his home. And along the way, and this is all in a day. So Jeez. like they were at lunch with each other. So it was Jeff, Roy, and George Harrison, which I can only assume if they're sitting at the same table, that waiter was having a serious problem. <laughs> so on the way on the way to Bob Dylan's house, they stopped by Tom Petty's house to see if they could borrow his guitar. Because Bob Dylan doesn't have any he, guitars. Yes, but they like really wanted Tom Petty to like hang out with them. So they went by Tom <laughs> Petty and like, hey, can we borrow your guitar? We're doing this thing. And then like by that night, they had recorded written handle with care <clears throat> if you have not heard handle me with care it is amazing one of my favorite songs of all time i put it in my top 10 yeah and not only is it just the greatest people in rock and roll history getting together and creating you know this amazing song but it's catchy and roy's voice totally stands out but like if you think about it um the traveling woolberries will probably all be mine uh throughout this podcast because um what <laughs> you said, at her. Did you, no you can't do george harrison george harrison's mine well george harrison is but so tom you. petty tom okay. petty okay is i just had such a so is that how they became they came up with the name the traveling woolberries is from this day yeah. So where they're just so wandering actually, around all of LA trying to like well, put together a song. Well, actually they called themselves the Traveling Wilburys, representing themselves as half brothers from the same father, and they gave themselves uh stage names and uh Orbison chose his uh his name as Lefty Wilbury after Lefty Frizzell and expanding on the concept of a traveling band of raucous musicians, Orbison also uh offered a quote about the group's foundation and honor. Some people say Daddy was a cad and a bounder. I remember him as a Baptist minister. <laughs> so, you know, like these, these 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 stories might not line up, but you remember him one way, and I'll remember him another. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they all took on a persona of a half brother to oh, okay. each other that they were all kind of literally brothers from another mother. Yeah. 
and uh, and he took on the um, the persona of Lefty, and that is also my cat's name. I was going to say, as soon as you said Lefty, I'm like, oh, that's where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> but also because, uh, but I kind of also thought because uh, soon there will be another podcast. <laughs> I thought maybe it was after that. <laughs> so later, uh, Jeff Lynn spoke about the session. And I think this says a lot about how amazing Roy was as a musician. It was just like everybody just sat there going, wow, it's Roy Orbison, even though he's like your friend and you're hanging out with him and having a laugh and going to dinner. But as soon as he gets behind that mic, he's doing his business. And suddenly it's shutter time. Orbison was getting uh, was given uh, one solo track, not alone anymore on the album, and his contributions were praised by the press. The Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 spent 53 weeks, more than a year, on the U.S. chart, peaking at number three, but it reached number one in Australia and topped out at number 16 in the U.K., and the album won a Grammy for the best rock performance by a duo or group, and Rolling Stone included it on the top 100 albums of the decade. Dang. So, I mean, it was a small album, you know. Yeah, just a tiny little thing. Yeah. A little side note, really. Yeah. He began writing songs and collaborating with a ton of musicians that he had worked with in the past and newer newer people just you know to get a new sound and to kind of right. touch a new generation. And so he worked on the new solo album Mystery Girl. Uh, it was already finished and scheduled for release in January of 1989. And Roy landed in Europe in mid-November, filmed and sang the playback of his brand new song, which is honestly one of my favorite songs. I say that a lot about Roy, <laughs> but man, you got it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, you got Jacqueline. it. Is, that's, it, it appeared in a, like the, the first time I really was, what is it, um, exposed to the song was I had heard it before, but for some reason it had never struck me. And then they did a movie called Boys on the Side. And of all people, Whoopi Goldberg sings it. Oh, okay. And spoiler alert, uh, in this movie, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg sings it after one of the characters has passed away. Oh, okay. And they do this like slow pan around the room, which it starts on the character's face who is about to die, and it pans around the room, and when it reaches back to the chair, it's empty. No. Oh. And I just remember being inconsolable. <laughs> because of all of this, you know, especially with uh, Mystery Girl coming out and his success with the Traveling Wolverines, he was determined to make his second chance at stardom work. It was very nice to be wanted again, but he still couldn't believe it. Uh, in his opinion, it was just, I can't, I don't know why this, this resurgence happened, but it did. Uh, he lost some weight to fit his new image and the constant demand of touring and there was a new demand that was happening, which he didn't really have when he first started out, which was now MTV has been born. And so now it's been, now you have to make music videos for the song. The, yeah. the, the video has to sell the song. Right. So as well as the newer demands of making music videos, in the final three months of his life, he gave Rolling Stone magazine extensive access to his daily activities. And he intended to write an autobiography and wanted Martin Sheen to play him in the biopic. And in November of 1988, Mystery Girl was completed and the Wilburys were writing the charts, and uh, he confided in Johnny Cash that he was having chest pains. And he said he wanted to do something about his health, but he never did. 
And a few days later, a club manager was concerned about how he kind of looked ill. But Orbison played the show to another standing ovation. So, I mean, like, even though he wasn't, it didn't look like he was feeling well, you know, he kept he pushing still himself. Through, yeah. He still went through it. Show must go on. Yeah. Orbison performed at the Front Row Theater in Highland Heights, Ohio, on November 4th. Exhausted, he returned to his home in Hendersonville to rest for several days before flying to London again and to film uh, two more videos for the Traveling Wolveries. He actually invited Rolling Stone to his recording and mixing sessions, his concerts, his home, just basically gave them, like, full access full access to his life. In 1988, uh, Rolling Stone actually kind of released the final session that took place over breakfast at a restaurant just down the beach uh, from his house uh, where he told him about wanting Martin Sheed to play the lead in his movie. Orbison said, basically, you know, I'll try a book now. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> he finished off his meal and smoking from a pack of camels that he actually left behind so his wife wouldn't get mad. Oh. So, yeah, he's... Sneaky, sneaky. He's going behind her back and uh, cheating on her with cigarettes. Kids. Tisk, Was that tisk. like a double... Yeah, I, I think, think we, we both went. we both tisked. Mm. <laughs> tisk, tisk. Oh. A happy and productive Roy Orbison said that he did not have a clear picture of where he wanted to be even in a year. It's like predicting the future of rock and roll in 1954 and 55, he said with a laugh. I have faith that everything will unfold properly. And that was one of the last interviews that he ever gave. (laughs) On Tuesday, December 6, 1988, he spent the day flying model airplanes with his son and ate dinner at his mom's house in Hendersonville. But during that afternoon, he complained of chest pains. Roy collapsed at his mother's house right before midnight and was taken by ambulance to the Hendersonville Hospital, but he could not be revived and died just before midnight. He was only 52. A memorial was held in Nashville and another in Los Angeles, and he was buried at the Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Memorial Park in Los Angeles in an unmarked grave. He is buried in the same cemetery as Dean Martin, Truman Capote, and Zsa, Zsa Gabor. But also buried at the famous gravesite is Frank Zappa, who both rest close to each other, and both of them are in unmarked graves. Wow. People constantly raise the question, why is that? Roy Orbison's son told Reuters in 2010 that it's definitely not intentional. It's not like we don't want people going there or whatever. It's just been put on the back burner for so long. Uh, Then he said that the original plan was to relocate the grave, which they still may end up moving forward with. In the very beginning, it was just too painful to deal with anything. And as my mom would always say, it's always something that was just in the works. On April 8th, 1989, Roy Orbison became the first deceased musician since Elvis Presley to have two albums in the U.S. Top 5 at the same time, with the Traveling Wilburys album at number four and his own mystery girl at five in the united kingdom he achieved even greater posthumous success with two solo albums in the top three and in his life he placed 23 songs in the top 40 with two number ones running scared and oh pretty woman and he was awarded six grammys and was added to the walk of stars at the country music hall of fame in nashville and he was also named 
number 49 on VH1's list of 100 Greatest Artists in Rock and Roll. Mystery Girl was released posthumously and rose to number 9 in the U.S. and number 3 in the U.K., and it was co-produced by Jeff Lynne, who Orbison considered the best producer that he had ever collaborated with. Elvis Costello, Orbison's son Wesley, and others offered their songs to him. Uh, The biggest hit from that album was You Got It which was written with uh, Lynn and Tom Petty. And following her husband's death on December 6, 1988, Barbara took charge of his business affairs and dedicated herself to promoting his music to to ensuing generations. She worked with friends of fellow artists Jeff Lynn, putting together a posthumous release of the King of Hearts album in 1992, an album which was actually reissued in 2007 by Sony, after they took charge of Virgin's catalog in 2005, as well as other projects. And she co-produced Only the Lonely, the Roy Orbison story, a European stage musical. And in 1993, the family home in Malibu was destroyed by brush fire. Uh, Although she maintained a residence on the West Coast, she actually returned to Nashville where she purchased a home and as well as commercial property to uh, house her music publishing company business. Her company, still working music, employs songwriters such as Tommy Lee James and Chase Bryant. Orbison was also involved in a charitable cause in aid of the homeless. For Showtime in 1990, she produced a Roy Orbison tribute at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles that raised in excess of $1 million for the city's homeless. Wow. Yeah. She <clears throat> personally funded Orbison House, a 21-unit resident for the mentally impaired uh, homeless of Los Angeles. She produced Roy, a tribute to Roy Orbison, which was released by Sony to coincide with what would have been uh, Roy's 75th birthday. Barbara Orbison was hospitalized from May 2011 until her death from pancreatic cancer on December 6, 2011, exactly 23 years after her husband's death. She is buried next to her. just got chills. (laughs) No. It's always sad, but it's always... It's always just sad in general, but so catching and so sweet when they, when, uh, you know, couples pass, like, within, like, on the same day or, like, within a certain amount of time of each other. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely sad. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to make light of it. But I just assume there's that. There's just something so, like, I just assume heart catching. When, when I die, I'm taking Will with me. <laughs> <laughs> so she's buried next to her husband at the Westwood Village. Memorial Park and Cemetery in Los Angeles, and but she actually has a marked grave, and that's how a lot of people find find him. Him is by finding her. This was followed by a celebration of her life in Nashville, Tennessee, and with the passing of Barbara Orbison, uh, Orbison Enterprise is now managed by her son Alex and Roy, carrying on the legacy of the soul of rock and roll, Roy Orbison. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. Uh, like I said. This is us just trying to find our footing, so we appreciate you kind of muddling through it. We hope that this is going to be something that was really entertaining. Uh, this is really a labor of love for both me and TJ. We both, you know, we're, we're massive fans and, and hope that you guys like the product that we're putting out. Uh, next week, uh, it's going to be Tracy's week to talk. Yeah. Yeah, TJ is TJ's going to bring us the story of the beautiful, the immortal Patsy The one Klein. and only Miss Patsy Klein. Miss Patsy Klein. Just to button up a little bit more, you can find us on Patreon if you're, you know, feeling in the giving mood. You can find us at 
patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on twitter and guys please seriously engage us as much as you can give us yeah. um tell us know, stories tell us we're right tell us we're wrong tell us don't don't, don't don't tell us that we're wrong don't tell us that we're wrong tell us that we were not right okay <laughs> <laughs> Also, this is not a pronunciation podcast, so... uh, Well, and two on the Twitter, if you guys have suggestions of of artists that you'd like to hear about or uh, stories that you'd like to share with us, by all means, again, reach out. Yeah, you can uh, find us on on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT, like Lindley and Tracy, so Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And you can find us on Instagram uh, where we'll do all of our photo dumps and fun stuff that we're doing at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And then you can also email us at rockandrolllt at gmail.com. Are we sure about that? So you can also find us if you want to share stories or anything like that and you're not part of the Twittersphere Twitterverse. I don't Twitter, know. I think it's Twitterverse. Twitterverse. Uh, and if you're not part of that, that community, totally fine. You can email us at... Rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. Yes, and uh, until that we are All one word. Until we're uh, huge stars uh, and and we no longer have time for you. Yes. I mean <laughs> when we're busy with our That would never happen. We would never not have time for you guys. That's true. All four people that are gonna be listening the first week that this is up. Hey, we might have six. I think a couple in my family will listen. <laughs> I know my mom's going to listen. That's why I didn't cuss at all. And it's rock and roll podcast, and I'm we've, not. We've actually been very good. We've been incredibly good. We've been good. very, very good this episode. Yeah. I Let's can't guarantee, like, down can't the guarantee road, that will like, always happen, but we've been like, very good this episode. We've been very good. Very good. So, uh, guys, again, thank you so much for for checking out our premiere episode. We really appreciate it. And again, hopefully, in the future, you know, we will figure out all the buttons on this recorder. And <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. And so, hope you guys will uh, be checking out our, our next episode uh, with TJ and Patsy Klein. <laughs> <laughs> So have a great week, guys. <laughs> Keep rocking in the free world. Bye, LD. Bye, TJ. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.